I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we're returning to the subject of Afghanistan. As it turns out, U.S. policies may still be affecting Afghanistan even after the U.S. troop withdrawal. Joining us to discuss this as well as ISIS-K, the Pentagon's self-investigation into a drone strike against Afghanistan, and much, much more, is Kyle Anzalone of the Conflicts of Interest podcast at the Libertarian Institute. This is a jam-packed, hour-long conversation, so I want to get right to it with Kyle. But rest assured, I think you'll find this rather fascinating, especially if you, like me, are interested in the topic of U.S. foreign policy and whether measures like sanctions constitute a form of economic warfare. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Kyle Anzalone of the Conflicts of Interest podcast at Scott Horton's The Libertarian Institute. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, Kyle Anzalon of the Conflicts of Interest podcast at the Libertarian Institute. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. So, Kyle, for my listeners that may be unfamiliar with you, uh, could you tell them a little bit about your work and your podcast, uh, Conflicts of Interest? Yeah, I started uh, Conflicts of Interest over a year ago. Uh, It's like a YouTube show. Before that, I was doing a show called Foreign Policy Focus. So there's an archive of that going back to right around the start of Trump's presidency. Uh, I also am the news editor at the Libertarian Institute. So I write the daily news roundup that gets posted there every day. And I'm the opinion editor at antiwar.com. So uh, under the news section, which is absolutely fantastic and a must read every morning, uh, there are the viewpoints under that and the spotlight article. And I put that together. 
So the first thing I want to start on was uh, recently in the New York Times, there was a, a piece that came under fire. Uh, they actually changed the, the title of the article, uh, but the original title of this article was um, Biden marks first Veterans Day in two decades without a war underway. Uh, and the subheadline uh, was uh, President Biden, who ended the 20 year conflict in Afghanistan this summer called veterans, the quote unquote soul of America and a responsible statecraft uh, wrote about this and said, what does the New York Times really think the wars are over? Um, and it's interesting because I think the New York Times actually did change the title uh, later on. But I, I think it's telling that we have a lot of people in this country, including in the pundit class that would frame things right now as, oh, we're not at war anymore. And you know what? We ended the war in Afghanistan. That one especially bothers me because, I mean, we may have uh, withdrawn the troops from Afghanistan, but the war is far from over there. Could uh, we speak about that a little bit? Yeah, I, you know, and that, that one of the reasons that I found the headline so concerning is it mirrored what Biden said in his UN speech, what, a month and a month or and a half before. And so it seems even more like a propaganda line than that's just clearly untrue. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, whether it's Syria, Iraq, where the U.S. is very active, Yemen, where it's you know, a, a less active role, or, you know, Somalia, North Africa, Niger, all these countries where the U.S. maintains some military role, you know, the these are all wars. And, and at least according to the people that live there, I guess if you ask an American, particularly an American journalist, it really doesn't count because they don't know it's happening. But there are people who are suffering as victims of a lot of American wars. Now, you know, Afghanistan, I, I think, is pretty complicated right now, where the U.S., I think, is really looking for a way to maintain the kind of war that Joe Biden has wanted in Afghanistan all along which is not really having a, a true presence on the ground, you know, flying in some special operations every now and then. I'm sure he would love for the CIA to be able to, you know, operate there, but particularly to have a lot of drone surveillance and a lot of, uh, you know, drone bombing, you know, and the ability to fly in like a B-52 and drop a bomb whenever he wants. And so, and also with the situation created on the ground in Afghanistan by the U.S. warfare, uh, including the fact that, uh, you know, we, we had a a government that was almost all funded by the U.S., but certainly all by the West. We turned off all that funding. And so we've created a situation where there's a lot of poverty and, you know, violence follows poverty. So a lot of the, the violence right now in Afghanistan, I'm guessing, is at least in some part due to the fact that almost all the money that was going into that country uh, was suddenly cut off in the middle of August. Yeah, it's really sad with Afghanistan because I think that people don't realize, you know, there's still bombings happening there. There's still attacks happening. And the people of Afghanistan really are suffering. But, you know, there's been no attention paid to it now um, by many Americans, I think, because we've, you know, left. And I'm just curious, what do you think the biggest flashpoints are when it comes to what is happening in Afghanistan now, because we have uh, this issue with um, the Islamic State uh, in Khorasan and we have the Taliban in power. Where are things headed right now? 
Yeah, so you have the Taliban who essentially control the country, and then the main uh, violent group in Afghanistan at this point seems to be the uh, ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan province. It's also abbreviated ISKP. Uh, for anybody who reads the headline sees that that's what they're referring to. And this is a group uh, that was at least originally composed of trink e taliban refugees who were victims of the pakistani and american uh terror war in uh wazoristan wazaristan uh pakistan and so they fled over the border into afghanistan there's you know various reporting on how welcome they were in afghanistan by the afghan government and the u.s government seeing them potentially as a force to be used against uh the the taliban now this this is before they pledged their allegiance to ISIS and everything like that. Uh, but however welcome they were, uh, they pretty quickly declared their allegiance to ISIS. Uh, they uh, declared the, the Taliban their enemy as well and really went to war waging a pretty nasty, although, you know, the Taliban have been doing that for years, uh, like campaign of suicide bombing and stuff in Afghanistan. Although they did target some places uh, like sports events, which I think the Taliban had traditionally not targeted quite so, at least not very much with suicide bombings and stuff like that. And so so some way this group was even more cruel now over the years i think they have added to their ranks with other member with other people in afghanistan uh particularly people who are you know uh not for whatever reason weren't able to join up with the afghan government during that time and didn't align themselves with the taliban now that the afghan government's gone there's a really good article in the american conservative um I forget, uh, creating another ISIS or something like that. It's by Bradley. I think his name is Delvin his, is his last name. And he writes about how, you, you know, you kind of had a situation in Afghanistan very recently that almost mirrors the debothification of, uh, of Iraq. And for, you know, people who are too young to remember, you know, that's when they decide to disband the entire Iraqi army, which included like 500,000, I think. And the, the Afghan army was far, far smaller. I don't know. I think their their uh, for, former foreign uh, finance minister was actually saying that the the Afghan army may have been six times smaller than they said, and that would make it like five hundred or fifty thousand members. But it was probably higher, maybe like a hundred thousand. But all these people are completely without jobs. They can't go work for the Taliban because they're just fighting a war against them. At least you know for people who didn't defect already. And there's absolutely no money in Afghanistan, so you can't go out and start a new career. And so if one of the options and one the ways to get paid is to go join ISIS K. That I could see that probably, you know, be look, you know, there, there are at least reports from CNN that I don't think are quite accurate, but people doing things close to like selling their daughters or stuff like this uh, suggest that the situation there is pretty desperate. And so this could be like fueling the reins of ISIS K right now. Uh, just, you know, having tons of people who are soldiers who had now have no way to make an income. And then uh, you also have the, that, you know, ISIS was defeated in Syria. And so now this, you know, ISIS K group in Afghanistan does, does still exist. A lot of ISIS fire, fighters in Syria were Uyghurs from China. And so this is a country that borders China. So, you know, maybe they're looking to get back to China and end up in Syria or in Afghanistan. I did read a report that a recent attack in Afghanistan was carried out by a Uyghur. It, and also, the, you know, the, again, Afghanistan does border China. 
China. So they could have never gone to Syria in the first place. I don't know. I just kind of speculate that, you know, potentially as the, the you know, jihadist safe haven in Syria deteriorates as Assad attacks that, you know, maybe some of these people are seeking to go to Afghanistan as a potential safer place to, uh, you know, fight their international or jihad or whatever the hell they actually crazy thing that they want to do and, and so at, at this time yeah as you mentioned most people don't know because the western headlines on afghanistan are mainly focused around uh you know how many girls could go to school which i'm not saying is unimportant or anything like that uh but they're, they're not reporting the fact that particularly the shia minority in afghanistan are being targeted by suicide bombers uh mostly or at least as you know far as i reported all from isis k and i from the Taliban. Yeah, and the other thing I've been thinking about is, you know, there's massive food insecurity. I mean, there, there's starvation happening essentially in Afghanistan. And one has to wonder how that plays into uh, the different factions vying for power there, because, you know, I, I'm assuming some people are going to align with ISIS Kate just because uh, they're extremely desperate. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's been a couple of reports, including the, I think the most notable one from CNN, claiming that there's Afghan families that were selling their daughters as like a, a nine-year-old girl selling her to like a 50-year-old, five-year-old man to like, uh, he said, be her servant, but, you know, kind of weaken a nudge, like be another wife or something creepy like that. Now, then there was some local reporting from Afghanistan that said that that wasn't true, that CNN was misrepresenting what had happened. And while the, the actual story isn't a lot better, it is a little different that the person was a relative and essentially the family had gone into further and further debt with this relative and this girl girl was essentially acting as collateral on the debt, which again, is a little creepy, is a little futile and stuff like this, but uh, that's far different than, you know, selling your daughter into said slavery as was, me. you know, this is going to a relative, uh, you know, there's a relationship there and stuff like that. So it does seem to be uh, several measures a degree less terrible that CNN is making it out to be. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a, a lot of people really struggling to get food right now in Afghanistan. You know, the U.S. laid the country to waste, especially in the rural areas over the past 20 years, bombing absolutely everywhere. And so now that there's not a ton of aid coming into the country, uh, you know, the, at one point for the past 20 years, the U.S. could helicopter whatever it wanted anywhere in the country. Well, now that all those that military capability doesn't exist some of these rural areas could be closed off during the winter because you know the mountain passes or wherever you need to get there are just too hard to get there and so you know it could be a really long tough winter for a lot of afghans they're looking at here and the u.s is essentially sitting on nine billion dollars nine plus billion dollars in accounts uh, of the former afghan government and this could be used that uh, you know if it was released to the taliban it could be used by the Taliban to, you know, fund their military operations. I'm not saying that, but it, at least maybe some of that money could get to the people of Afghanistan uh, at a time right now when it's absolutely critical. In a couple of months, if you decide to release that money, there may not be much you could do for a, a large portion of the community of the Afghans that really need it. Yeah, I like what Scott Horton said, and I know Scott, uh, Scott is just basically uh you know really on the libertarian side of things uh so as everyone knows he, he's not a fan of the u.s government and all that uh but he recently wrote on twitter 
you know, uh, all other things being equal, uh, I support humanitarian money and goods for Afghanistan. The U.S. Uh, created a huge economic bubble there, he writes. They're now facing a Great Depression-sized correction. And he says they're going to starve. Um, and it's interesting. I'm looking at some of the articles now. Uh, there's articles uh, like this one, unemployed Afghan journalists becoming street vendors, uh, stone quarrying and processing industry drops 90%. That's led to problems. Uh, the market is a complete mess in Afghanistan. So, you know, what can the U.S. do? Should they do something when it comes to Afghanistan uh, right now? I mean, the, the U.S., pulled the rug out from a uh, under a country like has never been done before, maybe to a population in history, right? I, I mean, this is uh, a level of absurdity that's almost unbelievable. It's not like just turning off every penny of welfare to like people in the United States, which, you know, I think even most libertarians really don't like, you know, kind of take the Rand Paul route where, you know, we want to cut corporate welfare first. And yeah, maybe eventually we could talk about cutting welfare, but there's right and wrong ways to do it. And, you know, nobody really just wants to end all food stamps tomorrow, right? Like they, we, we, you can imagine that that would create some rough situations. However, at least in the United States, there's a good amount of wealth, right? In Afghanistan, it's like they turned off the food stamps, but nobody else has money either, right? And so now there's just no money for a large section of the Afghan people. I mean, like 50 plus percent of the money in Af of the Afghan GDP was like what foreign goods and another huge chunk of that is heroin or uh, opium. And, and so, uh, you know, with that being cut off due to sanctions and, you know, all the international aid drying up, I, I mean, this is just catastrophic to do to a group of people. And again, I, I'm not quite sure there's really anything to compare this to in history where, uh, like the, the entire system of the country, uh, had the, their entire funding dried up essentially overnight. And it, it just to an absurd level. And, uh, it, you know, with the sanctions on top of it, that prevents uh, maybe softening the landing a little bit or something like that. You know, maybe the U.S. doesn't need to allow aid in themselves, but are to should allow aid in. You know, maybe the European countries pit that up and the U.S. does something kind of background to make it not look like they're giving aid when it's going right to the Taliban or where for PR reasons, you know, maybe they could figure things uh, around to like soften this a little bit, but they're really not. I, I mean, this is essentially that they, they see an, a unique opportunity to punish the Taliban right now, because, you know, if they establish well, more relations with other countries, then the Afghan won't be so desperate on the United States. Real quick, just to add to that, I mean, in a way, I, I think you could argue that, you know, we've continued the war by other means. I mean, it's economic yeah. warfare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sanctions are economic warfare, and it's something I talk about on my show a lot, especially in relation to, like, Iran and North Korea. But, you know, now the Taliban, now Afghanistan is under essentially another maximum pressure campaign where... I guess like, you know, they are able to trade some with neighbors and, and everything like that. But for the most part, they're completely frozen out now that the Taliban are in charge. And it's really unfortunate uh, that the U.S. isn't at least trying to like set up a diplomatic office in Kabul and work something out and really trying to get aid into the country. Uh, we seem pretty content on just, you know, having the Qataris as a middleman and 
not really doing much on the Afghan file. You know, I read this really interesting piece in Politico that USAID, uh, which is maybe a front for the CIA, but also the the branch of like the executive that is supposed to go around the world and deliver aid to people, which is headed by Sam Power. And they were in the article pointing out that USAID and Sam Power specifically haven't done anything on Afghanistan to essentially keep her hands clean of the entire mess. And so uh, it's, it's just comical. This is all political. You know, it, there, there's never been anybody who cared about the Afghan people from the start. And now millions of them are going to suffer. I'm not, uh, I, you know, I don't know what the UN numbers are looking like right now, how many people are going to be in like famine conditions and potentially starving to death this winter. But it's, it's going to be horrible beyond belief. Like you, you, there's no way anybody who's listening to this show, uh, certainly not none of my listeners, like I, I think can really understand like the horrors that are about to be experienced in Afghanistan, unless maybe you live in like Yemen or Gaza or something. Now, something I wanted to get into, and this is a bit of a sidetrack, but there was an article in The Atlantic, an op-ed that just came out, I believe, uh, yeah, November 15th. And it's by, uh, oh, God, Ann Applebaum, uh, who I am not the biggest fan of. But uh, she wrote an op-ed entitled, The Bad Guys Are Winning. Um, and, of course, uh, Ann Applebaum would write such a, I don't know, uh, cartoonishly written headline but uh she's going on about uh uh the 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 victory of 20th century uh liberal democracy over the ideologies of communism fascism and virulent nationalism uh that all of that could be reversing now the the autocracies are winning and she actually uh mentions afghanistan i found it kind of interesting uh she wrote um that uh well, she was quoting someone else, but she said uh, this this quote says they assume that any money that the West uh, they is in Afghanistan. They assume that any money that the West doesn't give them will be replaced by China, Pakistan, Russia and Saudi Arabia. And if the money doesn't come, so what? Their goal is not a flourishing, prosperous Afghanistan, but Afghanistan where they are in charge. Uh, she's speaking about um, the Taliban there. It, I just you know, people like Applebaum, I, I really don't get these characters. And I find it interesting she mentions uh, Saudi Arabia in this article because, you know, Saudi Arabia is one of our allies. And it, it brings me to something I wanted to mention here, which is uh, there was just an article in the New York Times uh, entitled U.S. Allies Drive Much of World's Democratic Decline. Data shows Washington aligned countries backslid, backslid and nearly double the rate of non-allies. Data shows complicating long-held assumptions about American influence. I find it interesting how uh, we talk about U.S. foreign policy and we're the great defenders of democracy. Meanwhile, we support a number of countries with pretty vile human rights records. And it seems like people like Applebaum don't even take this into consideration that maybe a lot of what the U.S. does is about its own um, self-interest rather than saving the world. And I, I think that's the case in Afghanistan. I was wondering if you could comment on all of that. 
Yeah. So uh, for some people, I, I think they're, they look at the world kind of like a, a risk game, you know, and all the little things are just pieces of plastic and they really don't care about the individual lives of people, which I have to imagine is the case in the way kind of she just wrote that up there. Also, it, it's just untrue that the Taliban like aren't willing to negotiate. You know, this is something that uh, me and Danny Shershan talked about on my show a couple months ago was that if you look back to the last time the Taliban were in charge in the late 1990s, the international community put pressure on Afghanistan not to improve women's rights, but to eliminate the opium trade. And what happened? The Taliban eliminated the opium trade in Afghanistan. If you look at the numbers of opium grown in Afghanistan in uh, like 2000 and 2001, it's almost zero. And then it absolutely explodes again after the U.S. comes back in. And so, you know, the, the idea that the Taliban are just these people that want to live the way they want to live and they're not willing to negotiate or talk with anybody is just stupid. And honestly, like if it was a Republican saying i think we can all like pretty easily identify like the racism in it right this is like you know near the level of like well the muslims will just be killing each other so who cares if we're the ones doing it right like all iraqis hating each other if we drop a bomb on a bunch of them fighting who cares you know that that's kind of i i think another way a lot of this is looked at now you brought that, that article in the New York Times, which I also read today, and I got like kind of a big kick out of it. That being said, if the New York Times had like found some nonprofit to write an article or to have a study that says it was Russia and China undermining democracy, I won't put too much stake in it. So I don't put a whole lot of stake in you know this particular study. But I, I mean, I do agree with the general conclusion, right? That if you look even at, at Afghanistan, who's been funding the Taliban this whole time? It hasn't been Russia. It hasn't been China. It's been Pakistan, our ally, right? Like, isn't that like a major problem in all this? And the Saudis, which they point out, the Saudis are you know one of the biggest you know uh, destabilizing forces in the entire Middle East, maybe next to only Israel, which is you know nobody talks about. Has waged a ten-year bombing campaign in a neighboring state of Syria, right? Like that doesn't get mentioned at all, uh, or that you know the the governments that the U.S. has attempted to build whether in Afghanistan, which completely fell apart, but even before it did, I mean, if you look at like even Washington funded like think tanks like Freedom House, right? Like that's like not like a, I don't think a particularly critical study of like U.S. bad government. So like maybe their part on Russia is really good, but their part on the U.S. bad government in Afghanistan is meh. But even they point out that that government was absolutely horrific. And why? Because it was beyond horrific. You know, it was a complete corrupt government. They stole everything. They propped up all kinds of warlords. They didn't hold anybody responsible for committing crimes. Absolutely a horrific government that we built there. And so, I, I mean... You look there, you Somalia, Libya is still a complete disaster. Uh, but yeah, it, it's the U.S. that has been in, a, you know, what are democratic values in some of these places anyways, that are monarchies and everything like that. But the idea of like how free you are, is certainly not U.S. bad governments that are making that happen. Or even if you look at like close allies like Spain, it was only what, five years ago that Spanish police were beating old laying ladies in the streets for going out and voting for independence. It was the same day that that nut shot up the concert in uh, in Las Vegas. So if you want to go back and look at, you could find video uh, 
of Spanish police dressed in full riot gear, wielding batons, swinging them at women who look like your grandmother, your little grandmother with the hunchback who's got like, you know, a little net tied around her head so her hair doesn't get messed up. Like this is, and, and these are, oh, we got to worry about Russia and China undermining democracy. You have said nothing to say about that. Yeah, well, that's the other thing about that Applebaum piece that I, I think was interesting. Because she's saying, uh, well, Afghanistan's going to try to rely on uh, our, our enemies uh, in, in the great power competition, the, the enemies of the U.S., like Russia and China. And I'm thinking to myself, from a purely pragmatic perspective, right, uh, I don't understand how our actions towards a country like Afghanistan or like Iran um, and I talked to Ted Snyder of antiwar.com about this recently. You know, doing economic warfare through sanctions against countries like Afghanistan and Iran um, actually uh, is doing the very thing that people like Applebaum are afraid of. They're afraid of these countries going into the arms of China and Russia. Now, regardless of what one thinks about that, because, you know, I, to me, we're just entering a multipolar world. If they don't want these countries uh, falling into the arms of Russia and China, then why aren't they trying to engage in diplomacy with Afghanistan and Iran? Basically, they're just saying, well, you're going to do what, the, what you're told and uh, you're going to be subjugated to what we want. And, you know, Afghanistan and Iran uh, are starting to realize, hey, we may not have to do that. It's it's completely bizarre to me how people like Applebaum think even on a pragmatic level, like they're the actions that they're wanting the U.S. to take are actually doing the exact thing they're afraid of. Yeah. So, I mean, I never advocate for sanctions or anything like that. But if you really, really wanted to try to isolate one country, that may be possible. If you want to like try to isolate a handful of smaller states, it may kind of work. But once you're trying to like isolate Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, Zimbabwe, Syria, the Palestinians, and now the Taliban, it really isn't going to work. They're just going to trade within each other's countries and orbits, and they're going to be you know completely outside of any like U.S. economic influence whatsoever. And it, you know, I, I think Iran is a fantastic example though of how like the U.S. It hasn't promoted, you know, any kind of liberal rights at all. You know, recently in Iran, they did have uh, a government that, you know, I'm not saying like the Rouhani government was anything like a liberal democracy. You know, I mean, like they, you know, they, they still like had laws. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what their anti-gay laws are, but there are some on the books. You know, women mostly have to wear head coverings in public. I think there's some loosening of the restrictions there. But it was a more moderate government, including for the people of Iran. And rather than trying to commit to that, you know, the agreement that we had with that government, government and try to, you know, make things good for Iran while that government was in charge. That way it, it would, you know, foster the Iranian people, you know, keeping more liberal governments. We essentially did everything we could to economically punish Iran while the more moderate government was in place. And so the Iranian people went out and elected a hardliner. It's not very confusing to how something like that would happen. You know, U.S. sanctions are completely counterproductive if the actual goal was to help uh, the the people of the sanctioned com 
uh, countries have more liberty, which is always the stated goal of any of these sanctions, right? Whether it's, you know, South Africa or wherever, the idea is always that, you know, the government will let up and give the, their own people more freedom. And in reality, it does what the, the planners of U.S. sanctions actually know. And we know this because one of the guys who directed Obama sanctions policy, Richard Nephew, wrote a book on it and said that the deliberate policy in Iran was to make the people poor, to raise the prices of food and to increase the wealth uh, disparity between the rich and the poor in Iran in order to make the people more hostile towards the government. The idea is to overthrow these governments and in a violent way to allow the U.S. to basically have no near, you know, they, they just want instability in these countries, right? Uh, they, they want you know, even if not to overthrow the government, to basically make Iran have to constantly worry about like quelling internal division and protests and everything like that. They don't want Iran to be able to have a foreign policy. Same with Russia, China, et cetera. So then the other thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, we had this Pentagon report come out recently. Um, and you know, the Pentagon's basically saying, oh, those seven children and three adults uh, that were killed in a U.S. airstrike, that was just an honest mistake. Um, what are we to make of this Pentagon report? And I guess it's not the only time that uh, agencies have been self-investigating and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're not responsible. Yeah, I, I mean, this is the old, the Pentagon investigated itself and found it did, did nothing wrong. You know, you would think this is like Babylon Beer or the Onion, and it's, you know, just it's task and purpose. That's the headline of Jeff uh, Shogel's art, article uh, of that at task and purpose, basically, you know, saying that this is the official U.S. war policy now where we're going to allow the Pentagon to investigate itself and we're not really going to have oversight over this. And for further confirmation of that, just look at the new uh, New York Times reporting on this uh, strike from what, March 18th, I think 2019 in Syria, uh, where right around the, the border with uh, Iraq on the Euphrates River, there's an ISIS holdout uh, and they, they dropped three bombs and kill what 60 something people and they claim oh well in isis sometimes women are children were fighters and so we count everybody essentially as a militant and what do you know we killed what i think they said they killed 16 militants four civilians and 60 unknowns and so you know it's very easy to justify any strike when you chop the vast majority of civilians you kill up as unknowns and nobody's going to help be held accountable in fact today the pentagon did came out come out and apologize although what they apologized for is they got some of the reporting wrong on the strike they initially said that a 500 pound bomb was dropped and then two 2000 pound bombs were dropped and now they say all three bombs were 500 pounds and they apologize for making that mistake not dropping the bombs just misreporting the size of them which you know i who for the people who have you know were evaporated under those bombs it doesn't matter that also gets into and I, I think you were referencing this maybe uh the um there was another new york times piece i wanted to ask you about the uh how the u.s hit an airstrike that killed dozens of civilians in syria the military never conducted an independent investigation into the 2019 bombing on the last bastion of the islamic state despite concerns about a secretive commando force. So th this seems like another example of, you know, the same thing we saw with the uh, 
drone uh, attack in Kabul. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of goes to show the the point that I was making on my show about the Kabul attack is that, you know, nothing's going to change because nobody's going to be held responsible. And obviously, you know, the, the Kabul strike happened because, you know, nobody's held responsible for this strike in uh, 2019. Imagine, you know, they put people in military court and threw people in the brig for this kind of thing. Maybe uh, whoever's dropping strikes is going to be a hell of a lot more concerned to make sure they get the right person. You know, one of the worst things about that Afghan strike is the guy and the place he went. So the place they thought was an ISIS hideout and the guy they thought was an ISIS member were employees of a California-based charity. How the hell they couldn't figure that out in the eight hours they followed that guy around is unbelievable, right? Um, and and so there are ways to like make sure you're not blowing up innocent civilians, at least Part of the time, right? They really just don't care to look and try to figure this out very hard. And part of the reason is they could do it with impunity. Like, why make your job really difficult if it could be a little bit easier and not to look very hard? And I think that's probably part of at least what's going on here. That yeah, nobody's going to be held responsible, and it's just going to happen again. Uh, the, this strike in Syria did feel like, a, I guess, a, the, a particular part of the reporting did feel like a lot of confirmation as far as what. Uh, myself and my co-host Will Porter have been speculating on the show and talking about in Syria for essentially four or five years now. And as the U.S. has labeled almost anyone they kill as a potential militant to avoid reporting any civilian deaths. And uh, initially we had written an article about Mosul where this was going on as the first piece we published at uh, the Libertarian Institute together. And then we talked about it on the show for all four years where, you know, they were like, oh, you know, we carried out a strike in this uh, town today and we hit a house and we killed two militants and a bunch of unknowns and no civilians. And we were like, those bunch of unknowns are civilians. And the, yeah, the way they count it is basically, I think any boy old enough to hold a gun was or probably any child that's large enough to hold a gun was counted as a potential civilian. All women were potential civilians. And unless, you know, you were like a baby in your mother's arms, they just weren't going to count you as a civilian death in Syria. And so who knows how many tens of thousands of people that, that we killed in that war. So let's say uh, we could change all of this. Who would need to be held accountable uh, for changes uh, to be made? Like, like, do we have to, what, what do we have to see with regards to generals, with regards to maybe even the Biden administration itself? Uh, what would be what you would want to see in regards to changes to prevent these kind of things from happening and prevent, you know, this constant excuse making where, hey, we investigated, there's nothing wrong, we didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, Certainly with this strike that's in 2019. So this is what? Well, three years into Trump's presidency, all this the, is policies, the serious strike we're talking the, about. the serious strike. You know, this is very easy to say it goes all the way to the very top. Right. Like, you know, if a president takes office and two days later a strike happens, like, you know, maybe it's not their policy or whatever. I don't know. But if you've been president for a couple of years, it's all your policy. You're responsible for all of it. And then just go down the chain. Uh, essentially all the way down to the guy who hit the button and maybe you know you cut him a break if it was that or the brig and you, you don't give him a life sentence but everybody else has to go to jail i mean you know you got the same essential problem with the whole obama administration they were waging this drone war the whole time 
Obama, Brennan, and all the way through the CIA on down, you know, through the military, they all have to go to jail. And then, you know, with this strike in Afghanistan, I, I think you at least have to go all the way up the chain of command uh, to General Kenneth McKenzie. Uh, I, I think there's room to go after Biden for all this, of course, although, you know, for all of his lies about the Iraq war, that's mainly where I want to go after that guy for. Uh, but, you know, you, you could look at something like this and at least morally speaking, you know, I know this is kind of my fantasy land, too. And I, I don't actually think, I guess, that we're going to have like General Kenneth McKenzie and Mark Milley on the stand and some prosecutor is going to be grilling them about why they're letting this policy take place, even though that it's killing innocent civilians and not actually stopping the war on terror and all that. But. I mean, you know, it's never going to happen. And in, in reality, it's almost worse because the only guy they would maybe punish is like the guy who like hit the button, who is in some ways like least responsible for this whole system and certainly the person who profits and benefits from the least. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, Adapt, Change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U Y O O dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at alexanderu.com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323-834-9828. This is only available once again to my California listeners. But if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. So I'm looking at an article now in uh, The Intercept uh, from a few days ago, November 4th. Uh, no accountability in military probe of Kabul airstrike, but intelligence failures laid bare. And it's really interesting to me, uh, you know, they talk a little bit about the one-page summary of the findings of the internal investigation um, led by Air Force Inspector General, Lieutenant General Sammy D. Said, and, you know, Said uh, basically concluded in this report that the fatal strike was, uh, you know, oh, it's all an accident, but he says that it's due to a mixture of confirmation bias and communications failures. And I, I find that interesting because, you know, if things like this are due to, uh, you know, just basically failures of intelligence, 
um, at best. That that's the best case scenario. What is going to be to to make sure that doesn't happen in the future? Because it seems like this is not an isolated incident. It seems like it keeps happening over and over, and the excuse is always, "Oh, intelligence failure," but it doesn't seem like anything is done to correct it. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the problem, right? Unless you start holding people accountable, then nobody's going to be interested in correcting it. And so it's just going to keep going on. And uh, I mean, it's absolutely exhausting to continue to cover this uh, over and over again on my show. Like, I wish it would stop, you know, to to know that, like, you know, this time we killed a bunch of civilians in Syria. And then in a couple months, somebody else is going to bother to report on a U.S. airstrike, maybe in Somalia, maybe in Libya or somewhere else. And it's going to, you know, be another couple scores of dead civilians. And, you know, nothing's going to be done about it again. But I'll talk about it on my show and point out how something needs to be done about it. And I'm sure you will, too, and all that. Um, yeah, but it's, it, you know, they, they keep saying, oh, there's intelligence failures. And this is like just some magical get out of jail free card. Oh, well, you know, the intelligence failed. What, what does that mean? That you couldn't figure out that the guy you were watching for eight hours worked for a United States charity, that he went to the home of his boss, who is also employed by that same U.S.-based charity in a city where you have biometrics, the information of where everybody works, who they are, for like, what, 80% of the people that live there? And, you you, you know, you chalk that up to like an acceptable intelligence failure. Either the whole system is, is rotten to the absolute core and the fact that you're not resigning in protests or just simply saying they're demanding every day that you stop carrying out airstrikes until you reform the intelligence process into something understandable and workable, then, you, you know, you're just participating in a system that, you know, is a machine that kills innocent people. And that's all the U.S. airstrike program is right now. It's just a machine that kills innocent people. And oftentimes for no reason, you know, we also had reporting recently from Jack Murphy and Scott Horton had him on his show to talk about this. I think he also did an interview with the Quincy Institute and in, uh, one of their panels where they were talking about an, um, rural Afghanistan, particularly in Helmand, uh, the the Taliban had taken down all the cell phone towers. I have no idea for exactly what reason. My guess is that, you know, they felt like it made it easier for people to like snitch on them and then they get blown up. Right. And so they, they take down the cell phone tower. So everybody starts communicating through hand radios. Well, the U S has also determined that the Taliban are the ones who use hand radios and anybody who's using a head hand radio is a Taliban and that's a death sentence. And so they're just dropping airstrikes on anybody who wants to communicate with somebody from more than a mile away without sending the smoke signal. I mean, it, you know, that's the the level of, you know, destruction that we had on the Afghan society. You know, imagine what that just does in general for people who are trying to like have a community that you can't like call your neighbor, like call your neighbor on any kind of device because, the, you know, the Taliban took down the cell phone tower and the U.S. will blow you up for doing anything else. You know, I mean, it, it, you're isolating everybody who's, you know, more than a couple hundred you know, yards from the Nets home and stuff like this. Uh, you know, it, it's an absolute level of insanity and in what we inflicted on that country. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that gets back to, since I mentioned that Anne Applebaum piece in the Atlantic, you know, I, I think she and others uh, are very angry uh, about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Although I would still say, you know, we're, we're still doing a form of economic warfare against Afghanistan. But nonetheless, the blob is very angry 
about the withdrawal. And, you know, people like Applebaum, I think, really want us to go back in. I mean, uh, I was just reading a report from, I believe it was U.S. News uh, entitled, ISIS in Afghanistan could attack U.S. within six months, says U.S. intelligence. Um, So there really is this huge push by various forces uh, within the foreign policy blob and uh, the intelligence world uh, to get us back into um, these conflicts. And yet the the thing that gets me is when we look at something like the uh, drone strikes, um, uh, what happened in Kabul, I don't see how any of this does anything other than create, uh, you know, the possibility of blowback, because I'm pretty sure there are people in Afghanistan uh, that are thinking, hey, you know, the U.S. did this. I mean, it's it's creating uh, conditions uh, for anti-American sentiments and sentiments that would end up being supportive of uh, jihadism against the United States. Um, So to me, what's really weird is I think a lot of what the foreign policy blob uh, promotes actually acts against U.S. security interests. Uh, What's your take on that? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And just to add to that, you know, remembering back to like the 1990s in Iraq and, you know, Al-Qaeda and the 9-11 attacks, you know, a part of the blowback there wasn't necessarily, you know, just the U.S. airstrikes on Afghanistan, but also are not uh, Iraq, excuse me, but also the U.S. sanctions on Iraq that were, were, you know, in part responsible for the starvation of so many Iraqis. And it's not necessarily, you know, just uh, like the drone strikes where people get killed under those that generate blowback, but also the sanctions that starve people to death. And so, you, you know, I would be very concerned about, you know, what kind of anti-Americanism is going to be generated in the very cold homes of Afghanistan this winter as their children uh, slowly starved to death, you know, as the the winter goes on, uh, you know, may may be pretty critical and significant and something that, uh, you know, is worth, you know, being aware of. One of the things that I feel like sometimes people point out is they'll say, well, even you agree that there's security threats to America. Well, they're all created by American foreign policy and your only solution is to do more of it. And so, you know, I, I, you know, do agree that, you know, there is a possibility that something like that uh, could happen. I do still see it as being pretty unlikely. And, you know, while there may be some anti-Americanism festering in Afghanistan, it's a very, very remote area of the world from the United States. And, I mean, I will almost be more concerned uh, about the fact that, you know, the U.S. prioritized its allies in Afghanistan, who I think were probably some pretty bad people, especially the CIA allies in Afghanistan who have been brought to the U.S., who you who knows what, you know, who the, some of these people are. And uh, some of these uh, CIA allies, I'm sure, were a part of the death squads that murdered hundreds of innocent Afghans. I, I mean, some of the just the worst people in the world. And I, I was just going to add to that, that, that gets back to the whole um, thing with Iran, because, I mean, we've had neocons come out and openly say, uh, well, these sanctions are about punishing the Iranians because they're not doing what we want. So we're going to punish them. They support the wrong leaders. Uh, it, what always gets me is these neocons, uh, by their own logic, don't seem to think, hey, what if the Iranians realize you're doing that? Do you think they're going to side with the U.S. when you're trying to punish them, they're probably going to side um, against the U.S. 
Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, just kind of imagine if it was happening to you or something like that. Uh, like if the rest of the U.S. like officially sanctioned Tetson, Texas or something like that, the Tetsons would do the opposite, even if they didn't want to just to, you know, stick it in the nose of, you know, face of everybody else. I'm sure the Iranians like kind of had that like kind of same nationalistic pride, like screw you. You're not going to tell me what to do. Now I'm going to do it twice as much. Not in every case, because you know, some of it's like kind of horrible humanitarian stuff, but it certainly is going to cause like a rally around the flag effect in these countries where, you know, if the there is issues within the leadership corruption, and stuff like that, people are going to be more likely to support the governments. I, I think that you know one of the greatest gifts that we've given to Maduro and uh, the Castro communist governments in Cuba and, and Venezuela has been our sanctions and economic warfare that have given these governments a huge out for their failures. I don't know if you, you know, maybe feel the same way about that. And I do acknowledge that the sanctions themselves generate some of the failures and a lot of the desperation, like, you know, the, that things get so bad uh, in these countries is in part, you know, due to the sanctions. But at the same time, if, you know, these governments had to be accountable to their people and couldn't blame the U.S. sanctions, um, I don't know how long they would stay in power. Yeah, and I think that's one thing, you know, I, I know the left and anti-war libertarians can disagree on things like um, Latin American countries, um, you know, that are, that are socialist or countries like Cuba and Venezuela. But I, what's interesting to me is I think oftentimes uh, anti-interventionist libertarians and the left can still agree that the sanctions against these Latin American countries are not a good thing at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm completely opposed to them. And again, like I think it, you know, in the long run, it would probably be worse for like the Maduro and Castro governments. But, but you know, maybe not. Maybe uh, maybe the you know the, the systems they have there will work in the long run. And uh, without you know the U.S. sanctions, the people will prosper. I kind of doubt it, but you know, let them try. Well, it's their choice ultimately. You know, is is if 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 a, if I mean, who are we to yeah. tell a country? You have to be uh, using our system. You know, it's it's uh, oh, to me, it's a violation yeah. of the non-aggression principle. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, self-determination. It's you know, I'm opposed to all warfare, including including economic. You know, I, I even say when people are like, you know, do you support like the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement? Even though I'm completely pro-Palestine, I don't support sanctioning Israel. I mean, there there's other as I mean. The BDS thing, this is going off topic, but I feel like there's aspects of it that I'm weary of, like the sanctions, uh, but then, you know, the boycotting and stuff, I'm not sure that I have as much of an issue with that. So I think it's a little bit, it, it can get complicated oh, yeah. with that. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I think when they people sometimes mention sanctions, it's kind of undoing the economic aid that we give to Israel, like the three point eight or the four point eight billion dollars that's going to be this year. I think that, you know, BDS, uh, while I don't really like the initials, I think it sounds like something weird. You know, like if somebody really doesn't know what BDS is and you're like, I like have like a BDS shirt on, they may think you're into like some weird sets thing, to be quite honest. You know, I, I'm not joking. Like I've had people like look at me kind of funny why i've mentioned those letters together like uh because i think if you add one more letter it does make a sets thing but anyways um but i do think like it's kind of become a slogan now and it just represents you know decoupling uh the israeli i guess uh, grifting off the americans 
for billions of dollars a year, not necessarily actually like sanctioning Israel so the U.S. can't import any Israeli goods or anything like that. There's just two more things I wanted to cover briefly. I mentioned earlier that there's already uh, news outlets quoting uh, intelligence saying uh, ISIS-K could, could uh, you know, end up attacking us in the future. Uh, this is becoming a problem. You know, we may have to do something. Uh, how do you respond as someone who's anti-war when people say, well, you know, uh, anonymous intelligence sources say that this is a threat? Yeah, uh, I mean, depending on how well the person knows me, I there a good amount of my you know friends now have heard me say something I was right about, and so whether it was like the Afghan bounties or Russia gear, so I'll be like, oh, that same intelligence, like that kind of stuff. I think is almost more effective than me going into like a fifteen minute explanation on how you know ISIS K is really remote, how they don't have that many fighters, how they're really going to struggle just to not get overrun by the Taliban and all of this, and so I would look you know more more to something quick and uh try to you know kind of be like well you know the same intelligence from the iraq war or you know something like that you know the the u.s anonymous intelligence is on is more wrong than not and how has the taliban been dealing with um isis k thus far so I mean, according to the Taliban, they've carried out like several successful raids. I think they claim they've captured 600 ISIS-K members. And while I'm skeptical of that number, there were prison raids as like the U.S., the Afghan government was falling. There have been some former members of the Afghan security forces to join up with ISKP. And so it could really be that they've arrested near 600 people. Now, my guess is that some of those people are maybe loosely linked to ISIS-K like maybe your, your cousins in any state at your house one night or something like that. Uh, that, you know, those kind of blurry links that the U S often uses to claim somebody was a member of Al Qaeda or something like that. I'm sure the Taliban are doing that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, heard on the Scott Horton show from Andrew Quilty, who's uh, I think still currently based in Kabul, Afghanistan, that there have been like some reprisal attacks carried out by the Taliban against former members of the Afghan uh, National uh, Armed Forces. And so I do worry that stuff like that by the Taliban could actually drive up the numbers of ISKP and people are worried that they're going to be targeted for assassination and really the only armed force that's opposed to the force that wants to assassinate you and you're you're more likely to join up with it and so the, those kind of things that the taliban if they crack down too hard and you know are too brutal could actually you know in a you know inverse kind of way help swell the reins of iskp or something like that and i, I you know i think that's a, a part of something to consider here is that you know th th this is a government that that i don't think is maybe going to be particularly inept. Maybe maybe they, they do a great job of ruling Afghanistan, but my guess is that they're probably going to be too brutal. And so that, that could create part of the problem here. Now, the other thing is, though, is the 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 trinky taliban are enemy of the pakistanis uh the area of afghanistan where they kind of exist is 
between Pakistan and Afghanistan, the Taliban and the Pakistanis have a good relationship. So I don't necessarily think that there's a large chance that a whole bunch of these people are going to be like able to freely move around uh, out of the Nagahar province of Afghanistan, which, it, you know, as Scott Horn likes to point out, is probably the most remote place on earth from the United States of America. Like you couldn't imagine a more different place uh, <laughs> in the world and a harder place to get from there to the United States. And so, I, I mean, overall, I don't think there's like much of a threat Americans had to worry about from ISKP. And uh, I, I, my guess is that the Taliban probably cracked down too hard and fuel a little bit of insurgency against them. But overall, the group doesn't grow to any great size just because there's a lack of places for them to go, uh, kind of similar to the original ISIS. You know, what are you going to do when everybody around you hates you? Yeah, and I mean, there's so many Afghans caught in the middle of this that it's, it's really sad. I mean, I was just reading a report, um, and I forget where it was from. Oh, it's from the AP, actually, entitled, um, Despite Mistrust, Afghan Shiites Seek uh, Taliban Protection. And it's because of this stuff with... Um, the Islamic State. So, I mean, I mean, you have Shia Muslims that are just caught in the crossfires and it's like, well, you know, the the um, Islamic State doesn't like us. Does that mean we uh, need to be supportive of the Taliban? You know, uh, so it's all very complicated. I think that's the one thing people miss uh, about analyzing Afghanistan or don't understand about Afghanistan is you have all these different groups uh and, you know, uh, all these different elements of Afghan society that uh, have to sort of choose between different factions and hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy to, you know, kind of judge from the United States and stuff like that. But I think when people, you know, kind of uh, how many people do you know that choose between the Democrats and Republicans because they don't like either of them? And I mean, You'd be like, oh, yeah, but the Taliban kill people. Tell me the next American president won't. So, <laughs> you know, that it's it's just very easy to demonize other people and, you know, look at the choices that they're making and be like, how could you possibly do that and not see any nuance at all and not really, you know, kind of think of them as like, you know, your neighbor who's a person like who has kids and like that's mainly what they care about is like their kids and making enough money for their kids and like, you know, maybe going on a vacation, maybe Afghans aren't so concerned about that, but, you know, weddings and births and stuff. Stuff like that these are the important things to like people everywhere really and um yeah like people just don't look at it that way they're just like oh that afghan supports the taliban or isis so they're bad and that's you know kind of the, all the nuance that they're willing to give to it where you know in the united states if you're like you supported barack obama who dropped you know twenty thousand drone bombs like isn't that a problem they're like yeah, well, you know, he was good for healthcare and the first black president. And, you know, he, he seemed like a pretty good guy and did some good things and stuff. like. And, and so, you know, they find ways to justify it in their life and they're fine with it. But when somebody else, you know, there's no way to understand the, deci the decisions and the choices they're making. So last thing here, and then I, I promise to let you go because I kept you a little bit over time so far. But, uh, you know, there, there were two other articles and I think you've been covering this is uh, there's one from Reuters uh, about a baby handed to U.S. soldiers in the chaos of the Afghanistan airlift that's still missing. Um, and then not only that, but there's also uh, an estimated 
1,300 Afghan children evacuated to the U.S. that are, quote unquote, in limbo. Um, and they don't know where their parents are. Uh, so I know you covered that on your show. Could you talk uh, a little bit about just what is going on with all of that and these children that, you know, uh, are just separated from their parents? Yeah. So this, this seems to be a, a real issue that the, you know, Biden administration who has really touted, you know, for all the mistakes that they made, they're like, you know, the one thing they're really trying to make the Afghanistan about is we got all the people out and we did a great job. Well, if you well, lost except for baby, that baby, not yeah. so much. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, that that's a pretty big deal. And, and, you know, I'm really concerned that there are, maybe not a lot of documentation with some of these children. And so there seemed probably very high risk of like sex trafficking and and stuff like this. Uh, I'm very concerned about all this. And I hope that there's, you know, people really looking into and trying to do some real reporting on this and figuring out if the United States really knows like who we're giving these kids to. Because in the Reuters article, I read about the 1300 children. It seemed like some of them they were giving to like maybe friends of family very loose connections to the actual and not that you know it's great to have them in camps or anything like that but once you separate these kids from their parents uh putting them with random adults who you know may or may not be friends of the parents may or may not be good people uh is a very dangerous situation to put these kids in especially in a country where i, I mean maybe they speak english if they were from kabul uh but chances are they they don't speak great english they're probably not very aware of like the American systems, like how to report if you were in an abusive situation, who's a safe person to report that to, uh, you know, just being able to make and have friends like, you know what I mean? Like their, their community is probably going to be limited to the family that they're with or, you know, not very far beyond that. And so the, these will be kids that it, are going to be at really, really high risk of abuse. And it just, it really bothers me how much the Biden administration has touted the success of this, where, yeah, you landed plans in Afghanistan, you stuck a bunch of people on them and you flew them out. Congratulations, I guess. But that's far different than successfully withdrawing families and making sure that, like, the people getting out are people who need to leave and uh, not, you know, I mean, not just like whoever the CIA happened to work with. Well, the family separation thing is just, you know, there needs to be more attention paid to that just because, I mean, I thought it was really bad under Trump when we had the the family separations with ICE. I mean, because that stuff is going to cause trauma. And, uh, you know, I can only imagine, you know, these kids when they grow up, how angry they're going to be about that. Uh, and, you know, it, it it leads to bad outcomes for everyone involved. And yet, you know, I don't think uh, anyone's being held accountable um, when we were talking about, you know, ICE and, and, and uh, child family separation there. Everyone was on that. But I feel like less people are on this when it comes to Afghanistan. Yeah. And particularly how far the children have been moved from their parents um, and probably just how unable to understand the situation. Uh, you know, maybe for some of these migrant kids, you know, they are like, walking through Mexico to the U.S. border. So that is like a decent amount of time to think about what's going to happen. The situation in Afghanistan happened very rapidly. Uh, I'm not sure like parents were really able to prepare their kids with 
you know, what to do, like how to make sure they're able to like have a plan to reunite with their parents or a relative in a, you know what I mean? Were they able to call him and make sure there is somewhere safe in the U.S. for them to be taken? Also, these people ended up all over the world. You know, I was reading a story, I forget where, it might have been an Afghan story, where there's like part of a family, I don't think it's like a mother and son or something like that, but it's like two uh, 20-something-year-old brothers, I believe, and one was in Albania and one was in Germany, and they don't know how they're going to get reunited and stuff like this. Uh, so I have no idea, like, how many families are broken up in this way or broken up across the U.S., but there was no real plan here. And something I was worried, warning about on my show from the very beginning is, again, you could pick people up and put them on planes, but that's not like the same thing as a successful relocation, and there's a lot more work to be done here. And... Um, uh shoot can you still hear me yes yeah right, i'm not sure what have my screen but anyways uh it just, just to kind of finish up that you know this is going to be a population that has suffered under the u.s war for 20 years now you have at least 1300 children who have likely you know developed at least some level of ptsd from being separated from their parents for well over three months now right i mean this isn't like you know just like a week or a couple days hey kid we're getting your parent here tomorrow they're on a plane that's not the situation they they have no idea they, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of abandonment stuff here. And, you know, there are later in life mental health repercussions from that, that, you know, you should be very aware of. And whatever administration's in charge has to be prepared to handle that or else, you know, it's going to create worse outcomes. I, I just want to know how you lose a baby. <laughs> That's insane to I, me. <laughs> I, I assume that some either very ill or very disgusting person claimed it would be my guess you know what i mean maybe some lady who lost a kid you know sees an opportunity to get a baby and does or somebody saw an opportunity to have like a potential like servant slave trading sell piece you know babies are worth like you could sell babies like it's pretty disgusting but people will pay like thousands and thousands of dollars well, uh, I, we need an baby. investigation into that because someone needs to be held accountable for, I don't know how a baby goes missing and no one's held accountable. I, I, I will almost guarantee you that the military may honestly not know. Like they, they may have just been like, oh my God, that's my baby. Somebody handed it to somebody and it was never seen again. And, and or maybe they have like video of it and they're just going to cover it up and we'll never know uh, because, the, you know, it's 60 years later, Biden's like, ah, it's still too early to give up the JFK files. Well, on that note, I want to let you get going, Kyle, but how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work and uh, conflicts of interest? Yeah, so libertarianinstitute.org, anything I write, including my daily news roundup, the podcast I put out is going to be found there. Uh, and then the viewpoints at antiwar.com. I, I mean, it, it's really such a great place to go check out. Now, we have original articles every week. Uh, you, you know, you've interviewed Ted Snyder. Uh, we got Dub Band out. Ted Galen Carpenter, uh, Danny Shershin, um, Ray McGovern, Ramsey Brood, so many great authors writing for us. Dan Larison. Um, yeah, it, it's absolutely great right now. And so definitely check out the viewpoints at antiwar.com. And more than half of the people you just named have been on my show. So I'm very proud awesome. of that. Have a good one. Uh, and uh, also, um, 
what's your Twitter, anything like that? Uh, so people can follow you Kyle on Anslone media. underscore on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. You could friend me if you want. I'll try to accept it, but I really don't like Facebook. So if you got both, hit me up on Twitter at Kyle Anslone underscore. And thank you again, Kyle Anslone, for coming on Parallax Use. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kyle Anzalone of the Libertarian Institute's Conflicts of Interest podcast. And as always, if you can, please, 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 please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I'm hoping to travel to New York in the near future to cover the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, and I will likely need the help of my supporters to do that. So if you enjoy the show, please, please, again, consider supporting me on Patreon, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Of course, there's uh, everything from $1 tier to $100 tier, and a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And at the $10 and $15 tiers, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So producer's credit shout-outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Use, well, then consider supporting me at the $10 tier or above at my Patreon page at, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.